I am Thomas Solomon, and you are listening to the VO2 Podcast. If you have been following this series, you have become a bioenergetics nerd and have knowledge of how to acutely increase your fat oxidation rate during exercise. You have also taken the plunge into the 100-year history of low-carb diets, and you understand what happens to your economy and performance when habituated to a low-carb diet. But you are left with one very important question. Is a low or a high carbohydrate diet your best approach for enhancing your performance? Today, you will find out. For the athletes I work with, I understand their needs very well. But I probably don't know you. This means that I cannot possibly understand the nuances of your needs as an athlete. My purpose with these posts is not to dictate, but to help you learn and make your own decisions. Making bold changes to your training, which includes altering your diet, must be well informed and certainly not implemented on a whim. I always encourage folks to understand their needs and then conduct a cost-benefit analysis for any such change. So, when deciding whether or not to go low-carb or to be keto, educate yourself in all possible outcomes. The first important knowledge bite to be armed with is that low-carbohydrate availability will probably increase your protein needs. Low-carbohydrate availability caused by a short-term low-carbohydrate diet reduces whole-body net protein balance during and following a moderate-intensity workout due to the increased whole-body protein oxidation when compared to a short-term high-carbohydrate diet. In other words, low-carbohydrate availability causes more protein to be burnt to produce fuel during exercise and in the recovery period that follows not good. Such findings have been replicated in runners. Amino acid oxidation was increased following a morning 10km run when runners had slept low, overnight low carbohydrate availability induced by low carbohydrate feeding, following a high intensity 10 times 5 minute interval session the evening before. Also not good. Collectively, these findings indicate that endurance athletes who train with a low carbohydrate availability burn more protein during exercise and may, therefore, have increased dietary protein requirements. So, athletes who choose to engage in a low carbohydrate dietary practice should be aware of their increased need for daily dietary protein, something you all learned about if you caught my protein post. The next important knowledge bite to be armed with is to beware of anecdotes. Anecdotes can be enticing, but anecdotes can also be misleading, and some anecdotes are just nuts. Evan Dunphy was one of the world-class athletes enrolled in the first supernova study, who chose to participate on the low-carbohydrate, high-fat ketogenic diet. Two weeks after completing the study, he had a performance boom, breaking the Canadian 50km record by four minutes. Within the next year, he came fourth at the Olympics, 
after being only a top 20 contender prior to his participation in Supernova. An anecdotal success that is easy for some folks to assign to being keto for three weeks. Yes, he did not continue being keto after completing the Supernova study. And he was just one of 11 others who completed the study in the low-carbohydrate diet group, none of whom had the same performance boom. Dunphy himself does not attribute his success to being keto. He admits that he was also training harder in the supernova camp while being surrounded by other world-class athletes. This is highly motivating. And he believes that because training hard while being keto was super tough, it made him appreciate how to train hard thereafter. So, for him, the low-carb diet wasn't the ergogenic aid, but it was the nudge he needed to train harder leading up to the Olympics. Enticing. In 2016, Chris Froome tweeted a picture of his low-carbohydrate breakfast on a rest day en route to his win at the Tour de France. His sports nutritionist at the time was Professor James Morton, the brains behind the fuel-for-the-work-required framework. So, it was highly unlikely Froome fueled his win at the Le Tour that year on a low-carbohydrate diet. But that didn't matter, because Froome's avocado and eggs got out, and some folks lost their minds, resulting in terrible news stories like low-carb diet propelled Chris Froome to three Tour de France titles. I'd be curious to know how many cyclists went keto as a result of that. Then I also wonder how many of them aborted being keto when they discovered his actual race diet plan, fully documented on BBC and openly discussed on Fuel the Pedal, en route to his win at the 200 2017 Giro d'Italia, where Froome ate more than a thousand grams of carbohydrate on some days, far from low carb. Misleading. I recently listened to an interview of the former multiple Ironman champion turned coach Dave Scott on the Human Performance Outliers podcast, during which he said two things that got my neurons firing in ways that made my facial capillaries dilate. First, if all athletes switched to a low-carb diet, they would no doubt see a performance increase. And then, look at these former Olympians who are now diabetic because of high-carb diet. These sweeping statements are not scientific evaluations, but opinions that confirm his predetermined bias. You could indeed try telling Elliot Kipchoge, Peres Jepchircher, Jim Wormsley, Camille Heron and Kylian Journey that they should switch to a low-carb diet because they will no doubt see a performance increase. Sure, you could try that. You could also try telling Olympians to stop eating carbs because just look at these former Olympians who are now diabetic. Sure, you could. But I spent 17 years as a researcher in that very field and there is zero evidence linking an endurance athlete's diet and their risk of developing diabetes. Just nuts. The best way to guard yourself against anecdotes is to heed what you learned as a child. Don't take candy from a stranger. But some anecdotes are useful. In the spring of 2020, the ultra runner Michael McKnight ran 100 miles without eating 
in 18 hours and 40 minutes. Impressive, right? Yes, of course. But let's think for a second. 1840 is about two hours slower than Michael McKnight's best 100 miler of 1632, during which he maintained high carbohydrate availability by regularly feeding and nearly seven hours slower than the 100 mile world record of 11 hours and 19 minutes. This is an opportune moment to introduce another ultra-distance dude, Zach Bitter. Mr. Bitter runs speedy marathons and currently holds the 100-mile world record of 11 hours and 19 minutes. He is a low-carb keto guy, who is among the more pragmatic adopters of such dietary approaches. You can listen to him break down his own ultra-training in episode 212 of his Human Performance Outliers podcast. He habitually eats a low-carbohydrate diet, except when his training load is very high, and except when he is leading into a race or during a race, when he uses carbohydrates as a fuel. When Jim Walmsley and Ellie Greenwood smashed the Western States 100-mile records in 1409 and 1647, a race which has more than 6,000 metres of vertical gain, they were not being keto, or fasted, nor did they do so without consuming any calories during the race. Their records were achieved with high carbohydrate availability. When Eliot Kipchoge and Bridget Koskai broke the marathon world records in 201 and 214, they too were not keto, or fasted, or avoiding calories during the race. Quite the opposite. They broke the world records with high carbohydrate availability. For the best on earth, high performance over any distance appears to be dependent on high carbohydrate availability, moving fast while burning a mix of slow-burning, oxygen-guzzling fuel, fat, and fast-burning, economical fuel, glucose. Except for the Fat Max World Championships, I know of no high-performance achievement pushing the frontiers of speed that has been nailed with low carbohydrate availability. A useful anecdote. So, the final important knowledge bite to be armed with is to remember that carbohydrate is your speedy friend. Remember what you have learned about energy storage and bioenergetics. Number one, we humans store a lot of fat. Number two, fatty acids produce more energy, ATP, per gram than glucose. Number three, Fatty acid metabolism is slower to produce energy than glucose. Number four, fatty acids are a less economical fuel than glucose, requiring more oxygen to produce ATP, meaning glucose produces more ATP per litre of oxygen. And number five, bioenergetic processes are hardwired in our biochemistry. We cannot change them. We can only influence the relative proportions of fuels being used. You have loads of fat to use, even if you are very lean. So, moving slowly, at a low fraction of your maximal aerobic capacity, for a long time is really not a problem for an endurance-trained athlete. But, when operating at a high intensity, when oxygen availability becomes a limiting factor because you are approaching your VO2 max, it is entirely intuitive that your body 
will try to use the most economical fuel to use less oxygen while continuing to produce ATP at the rate it needs to keep moving forward at high speed with grace, which incidentally rhymes with warface. Theoretical bioenergetics suggest this is true. Experimental studies show this to be true. And empirical evidence from the field prove this to be true. For Zach Bitter, Michael McKnight, Jim Wormsley, Ellie Greenwood, Elliot Kipchoge and Bridget Koskai, as well as any other endurance athlete trying to achieve their best times, being a fat-burning monster is essential. One way to increase fat oxidation rates during exercise is to, quite simply, endurance train. Remember, training causes adaptations that increases the amount of fat stored in your muscles, the capacity to deliver fatty acids to muscles, and the amount of fat-burning enzymes in your muscles. Another way is to run slowly. Remember George Brooks's crossover concept. At lower fractions of your maximal aerobic capacity, you preferentially burn fat, and as you increase your intensity, you increasingly rely on carbohydrates to fuel your movement. Or you can run before breakfast i.e. fasted training, low liver glycogen. Or you can run having previously glycogen depleted, low muscle glycogen. Or you can habitually consume a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, low muscle glycogen and increased fat burning enzymes. Many routes to the same goal. But to be the fastest endurance athlete you can be, in addition to being a fat-burning monster, you also need to be able to burn carbohydrate when you need it. Carbohydrate is your speedy friend. But low-carb works for me. Well, that is fine, if it works. Anyone who has read the studies comparing high versus low carbohydrate diets on endurance performance will be well-versed in both the within-diet and the between-diet variability in performance outcomes. Louise Burke's study, Supernova 1, found that the improvement in 10km race performance among athletes receiving a high-carb diet during the three-week training camp was highly consistent. On average, there was a 6.6% improvement for which there was a 90% confidence interval of 4.1 to 9.1%. This means that... Based on the observed data in the study, if all endurance athletes were studied, i.e. all folks on earth that the study was trying to sample, then 90% of plausible values for performance improvements would be somewhere between 4.1 and 9.1%. Meanwhile, the effect of the low-carbohydrate diet was highly variable. The average change in performance in the study was negative 1.6%, and the plausible range of values, the 90% confidence interval, was predicted to be between minus 8.5 and plus 5.3%. In plain language, Supernova 1 showed that while some low-carb keto folks can improve their performance during an intense training block, most get worse and some get way worse. Meanwhile, all high-carbohydrate diet athletes are likely to get much faster. If you've been following my series, you will know that Supernova was replicated. 
Supernova 2 found that the high-carbohydrate diet during the training camp improved athletes' 10-kilometer race times by 4.8% on average, equivalent to 134 seconds, with a confidence interval of 207 to 62 seconds. On the contrary, the low-carb diet impaired 10k race times by negative 2.3% or minus 86 seconds, with a confidence interval of minus 18 to minus 144 seconds. In non-nerd speak, Supernova 2 simply showed that carb munchers get faster, some way faster, while keto folks get slower. Since the supernova data are publicly available, I was also able to do some further analyses of my own. The athlete's chance of having an increase in 10km race performance was 8 in 10 on the high-carb diet, and just 1 in 10 on the low-carb ketogenic diet, while the chance of a decrease in race performance was 3 in 10 on the high-carb diet and a massive 9 in 10 on the low-carb diet. This means that the athlete's relative risk of worsening their performance following a three-week intensive training block when eating a low-carb ketogenic diet was four. In other words, they were four times more likely to get worse. Whereas athletes receiving the high-carbohydrate diet were eight times more likely to improve their performance than if they had eaten a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. Such findings were recently confirmed in runners, in whom a four-week low-carb ketogenic diet impaired running economy, causing them to use more energy and consume more oxygen at submaximal speeds. And, while run time to exhaustion at 70% of VO2 max was not different following the four-week low-carb or high-carb diet, the authors also documented that the ketogenic diet caused a larger range in the change in endurance capacity and more greatly increased the chance of an endurance capacity decrement. Yes, a low-carb diet does work for some, but like the mother of the famous ultra-runner Forrest Gump once said, a low-carb diet is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And... To put icing on the cake, in 2020, three systematic reviews of this field were published, concluding that a ketogenic diet does not have a positive or negative impact on physical performance, and findings prohibit definitive conclusions regarding the efficacy of the endurance athlete's ketogenic diet for performance benefit, and that Available knowledge demonstrates no clear performance benefit to athletes following a ketogenic diet, with some benefit shown mainly in short-duration vigorous intensity tests, when weight loss was likely a confounding variable. While many of the trials provided no performance benefit, it is important to note that a ketogenic diet often did not cause a performance decrement, particularly in recreationally trained athletes. Now, you are ready to tackle that burning question. For endurance athletes, is a high-carb diet better than a low-carb diet? As you are now well aware, we humans, even the leanest of us, store a lot of fat, 
about 10 kilograms in a 65 kilogram person with 15% body fat, enough to produce around 100,000 calories of energy. That is enough energy to run for about four days straight, or enough energy to sit down doing nothing for about 50 days. In comparison, our bodily store of glucose is very small, about 500 grams, around 4 grams in the blood, about 100 grams in liver glycogen, plus about 400 grams in muscle glycogen, enough to produce around 2,000 kilocalories of energy. This can be munched through pretty quickly during exercise, in about 2 hours. These simple facts make it very clear that it is favourable for every athlete to be able to spare their glucose stores for as long as possible by tapping into the massive fat store because it will never run out during a session or a race. But while a high fat oxidation rate during exercise is predictive of an athlete's ability to perform, it only explains a small part, 12%, of their performance even in ultra-distance races. And as you know, fat produces energy more slowly than glucose and is less economical than glucose, meaning that as you run faster, or more accurately, as you run at a higher fraction of your maximal aerobic capacity, when oxygen delivery to muscles becomes a limiting factor, your muscles will use more glucose and less fatty acids to produce energy. If you race to compete, most endurance races require that you operate at a high fraction of your maximal aerobic power for several minutes. For example, you will cover a 3000 meter race at approximately 100% of your velocity at VO2 max, a 10k race at around 90% and a marathon at around 85%, give or take, depending on who you are and your abilities. So, when racing to compete, you will run at a high intensity and the predominant fuel used to supply energy will be glucose, the more economical and more rapidly burnt fuel. Consequently, training to compete is focused on maximising your ability to oxidise carbohydrate when operating at fast speeds and high fractions of your maximal aerobic power. So, for those of you who train and race to compete, i.e. training to race as fast as you can over a certain distance, on race day the clock is ticking and prizes are for the first person across the line. This also includes folks who truly smash ultra races. Just watch Jim Wormsley attacking Western States from start to tape, or Poe Capel giving it large at UTMB. There are no medals for who produces the highest fat oxidation rates during the race. Being able to produce a high speed as possible and to operate as high a fraction of your maximal aerobic capacity for as long as possible are key. To do so, carbohydrate is your speedy friend with whom you train with pretty regularly. Because having glycogen stores full will keep you ready to support your high energy demands and produce high power outputs when you need it. But many folks don't care about running economy or training to race as fast as they can. Your goal might be to complete, not compete, a race. Others among you may only be interested in the enjoyment of being able to sustain long, slow plods. 
Some of you might even be interested in completing ultra-distance races, not smashing them like Jim Wormsley. If you fall into any of those camps, being able to, to, to sustain a high a fraction of your maximal aerobic capacity as possible is less important. In that case, carbohydrate could be a friend you see from time to time. When racing at slower speeds, or more accurately, at lower fractions of your maximal aerobic capacity, your muscles have a lesser need to oxidise carbohydrate and can more greatly rely on the less rapidly burnt and abundantly stored fuel, fat, to produce energy. If you are just trying to complete a marathon or ultra-distance event, you might only be moving at 50 or 60% of your maximal aerobic capacity. So, your training only needs to prepare you to sustain a low intensity and less carbohydrate demanding speed. This could be achieved with a low carbohydrate, possibly ketogenic diet, but also remember that training to complete a race is also easily achieved eating simply and healthily with a moderate or even a high amount of carbohydrate in your daily diet. It is, in essence, actually quite simple. If you want to choose between low and high carbohydrate availability, learn to understand your context. Is carbohydrate your speedy friend with whom you need to train with regularly? Or is carbohydrate a friend you only need to train with from time to time? Consider your goals and what is important to you, make a cost-benefit analysis, and then you will know what to do. What can you add to your training toolbox? There are no such things as bad questions, but there are questions that need to be reformulated. It is common to hear endurance athletes ask, will you get faster on a low-carbohydrate diet? This was eloquently debated by Tommy and Nick the Bubble in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Tommy. Ah, no can do. Nick the Greek. What's that? A place near Kathmandu. Meet me halfway, mate. And that they did. My point being is that there is no binary answer to is a high-carb diet better than a low-carb diet. In this series, I have discussed many different routes to increasing fat oxidation rates during exercise by reducing your carbohydrate availability. Train low. A glycogen-depleting session in the morning, followed by another session later the same day, with no or low carbohydrate intake between sessions. Sleep low. An evening session, followed by no or low carbohydrate intake at dinner, followed by a pre-breakfast session the following morning. Live low. Daily low-carb intake with either a low-carb ketogenic diet, less than 50 grams of carbs per day, a high-fat diet, 80% of daily calories coming from fat, or a non-ketogenic low-carb high-fat diet, 15 to 20% of daily calories coming from carbs and 60 to 65% coming from fat. How very complex. As an endurance athlete with new knowledge and perspective, you can reformulate and ask yourself a better question. How can I train smart with carbohydrates to perform like a freaking legend? 
you are now armed with multiple approaches to help you fat adapt by manipulating your carbohydrate availability. Choose them wisely and keep training smart. I occasionally mention brands and products, but it is important to know that I am not sponsored by or receiving advertisement royalties from anyone. I have conducted biomedical research for which I have received research money from publicly funded national research councils and medical charities, and also from private companies including Novo Nordisk Foundation, AstraZeneca, Amelin, the AP Muller Foundation and the Augustinus Foundation. These companies had no control over the research design, data analysis or publication outcomes of my work. Any recommendations I make are, and always will be, based on my own views and opinions shaped by the evidence available. The information I provide is not medical advice. Before making any changes to your habits of daily living based on any information I provide, always ensure it is safe for you to do so and consult your doctor if you are ever unsure.